Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the Army War College. Thanks for joining us for today's program. As we begin a new year of the resident education program, we're taking this opportunity to add to a series that we began last year on great strategists. In previous episodes, I've talked to resident war college experts about some of the giants of strategic thinking, including Carl von Clausewitz, Sunza, Kautilya, and Mahan. But this list of important thinkers and theorists is, of course, much longer. So today we're going to begin adding the air domain uh, to the canon of strategic thinkers. And this is, I think, a rich and complex source of explicitly theoretical strategic thinking. And so here to help us uh, introduce air power theory uh, to the series is Dr. Tammy Davis-Biddle, who is an air power historian and faculty member in the Department of National Security and Strategy here at the War College. So Tammy, thanks so much for joining us here today. I'm delighted to be here. Great. So we actually are going to cover a lot of ground in not a lot of time. Uh, we're going to talk about Julio Duhay, Billy Mitchell, and Hugh Trenchard uh, all together. So maybe the first question I'll ask you is, can you help us understand why we're going to group these three together rather than doing podcasts on each of them individually? Sure. Why do they always appear as a sort of troika? Well, they were all working in the same period. Uh, they uh, were born in the latter half of the 19th century and lived into the early years of the 20th century. And they were riding a wave, really, of, of new technologies. They saw airplanes come into fruition, come to reality as weapon systems, uh, as instruments of technology. And they became strong advocates, all of them roughly at the same time, in different contexts, different settings. They were aware of each other, but they were all developing their own ideas and individually. Um, but at the same time, and they had very similar reactions to the airplane and became advocates for many of the same reasons. So often, when we look at these folks, we think of them as uh, a group of three, even though there are distinctions between them, many of their ideas were overlapping, many of their ideas were similar. So it's not unusual at all when we study uh, early air power to look at these three individuals. That doesn't mean there weren't other very important people, and in fact, some of what I would consider the most important people have been lost to us, uh, lost to history. So maybe these guys just had the best publicists or <laughs> they wrote the most or they were the loudest. Um, but they are the ones we do remember and they're all three worth remembering. Great. So you started talking a little bit about their, their context. So let's dig into that a little bit more. At the advent of air power, um, so can you talk a little bit about when that is historically and then also how this transition happens from them being, say, I guess, soldiers to airmen. Sure. Um, that identity uh, seems, seems important. Okay, well, obviously the advent of heavier-than-aircraft is with the Wright brothers, and that's a very short flight in 1903. But then just 11 years later is the, outs the outset, the beginning of the First World War. 
And airplanes do uh, advance technologically very quickly and become quite important in the First World War. There was a use of of bombing in the Italo-Turkish War. Uh, So the Italians were seeing this fairly early on in 1911, 1912. Um, But it really comes into its own. Air power really comes into its own in the First World War. Uh, not only as a tool of reconnaissance, but also for strike on the battlefield, for strike beyond the battlefield, for communications. It's playing a thousand different roles, and they're all developing very rapidly. The value of airspace is understood quite quickly, so fighter-specific, purpose-built fighter aircraft appear. And these three men had all of them... Uh, entered the world of aviation prior to the war. Uh, Obviously, it's a very new realm, but they'd all dipped in and they'd all become um, part of the air world prior to the start of the war and then took on important roles uh, for air power in the midst of that war. Uh, So Trenchard became, uh, had a crucial role in uh, the utilization of air assets on behalf of the uh, the army for, for Britain on the Western Front. Douai was advocating a major bombing campaign on the Italian Front. Uh, he advocated it so uh, aggressively that he was court-martialed. And then after the Battle of Caporetto, he was brought back because they thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he wasn't, wasn't so, so far, far off. off yeah. um, and Mitchell was one of the early air officers to go uh, to the Western Front for the Americans in 1917, saw what was going on and ended up commanding uh, uh, bombers and fighters um, on the Western Front in 1918 for the Americans. So all of them had critical roles in the earliest stages of uh, aerial the utilization of aircraft on the battlefield and beyond the battlefield in the First World War. All of them became convinced that this was a revolutionary weapon and a weapon of the future. Great. So in some ways, it reminds me of some other theorists that we've discussed on the series before, in which there is practical, on-the-ground experience with a new technology or a new way of, of fighting, just like Clausewitz is maybe trying to work out what has happened in the Napoleonic Wars, um, or Mahan is sort of seeing a new a new geopolitical landscape that emerges with naval power. Um, these thinkers are seeing air power in practice in its sort of nascent, militarized yeah. form in the First World War. Yeah, and is it is it correct to say that the major theoretical writing and thinking happens in the in the wake of the First World War as they're looking toward? A future of air power? It does, absolutely. Douay is, well, they, they've all come up with ideas about the utilization of aircraft from their practice, but also they start to zoom into the future uh, in their thinking. And a lot of that occurs in the interwar period. So when Douay writes Command of the Air in 1921, he's drawing to some degree on his past experience, but he's really leaping forward into the future, thinking about airplanes as a more sophisticated, more well-developed technology. He's imagining the pairing of chemical weapons and airplanes, which he brings to the table and creates uh, a, a notion that that combination would be incredibly potent and that civilians facing that would simply not be able to cope with it. 
Uh, Trenchard is developing. He's in an interesting situation. He actually was not in favor of an independent Air Force uh, initially. He was working for the Army uh, in the Royal Flying Corps, was very happy doing that, but was pulled out to become the chief of staff of a new independent Air Force in 1918, which he didn't really want to be, um, and wasn't too happy, got into a fight, uh, left that job, and then got pulled back into the Air Force as the head of an independent bombing force, which is something he never envisioned or advocated, but that's where he was um, as a result of geez, these contingencies. Um, and then after the war, he became chief of the air staff again. At that point, he was in a bureaucratic position where he was fighting for the the retention of an independent air force. So where you stand depends on where you sit, et cetera. And so he became sort of a bureaucratic advocate for air power and independent air power as a way of justifying the existence of a separate air force. Mitchell uh, is also, after the war, kind of zooming ahead into the future, arguing like his two brethren that airplanes were the way of the future and that airplanes were going to transform warfare in a very dramatic and revolutionary way. And so he is also looking forward into the future. They're, all three of them are writing in the 1920s, um, and uh, Mitchell writes into the 1930s, and, and Trenchard does as well, although by then he's, out of, he's left the, the Air Force. Um, but they're all advocates of the uh, Air, air Power in the future, and in particular of independent strategic bombing or bombing beyond the battlefield to affect the enemy's vital centers, as they put it. Right. And so these are concepts that will stay with us for a, for a very, very long time. Um, so you mentioned uh, Duhay's sort of most most famous work, right, Command of, Command of the Air, and we can yeah. see... Um, maybe a, a, a callback to Mahan um, with Command of the Sea and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Are there other key texts that we might identify with with this sort of trio of, of thinkers? Probably Trenchard's most important work is called The Aerial Object, The Object of an Air Force. And it's written in 1928 as a speech that's just before he... Uh, retires from the Royal Air Force. And it's kind of a culmination of his thinking over time. Um, because he's he's really um, working within the Air Force at that time, he's not sort of an independent author the way Mitchell later becomes and Dewey later becomes. He is writing policy papers. But that policy paper of 1920, May 1928 is probably the most important, where he lays out his ideas about air power, and in particular how um, you will have to drive the enemy onto the defensive. And this is drawing on his experience of the First World War, where basically when Britain was bombed in multiple times, but particularly in 1917, there was an outcry amongst the population saying, look, we need better protection, and we would like to be able to retaliate. So let's create an Air Force that can do these things. Trenchard was called back, and many of the, the aircraft that he was using on the Western Front were also called back home to act as defenders. He worried about this. He resented this. But he saw this as a way of gaining a kind of advantage over an enemy in the sense that if you attack them, 
they will be forced to devote resources to the defensive. And this became part of his thinking. So his ideas about how to use strategic bombing were a sort of firstest with the mostest approach. Go out, attack them hard, consistently, push them onto the defensive, cause their population to cry out for more defenses, and you will put them on a slippery slope from which they can never entirely recover. So that's, he's drawing from his experience, but he's also kind of um, extending it into the future and extrapolating into the future. Right. He's making causal inferences about how how this might operate in a future exactly. environment. Because I think exactly. one of the things that seems clear in hindsight is that all of the ways, say, airplanes are used in war in the Second World War are sort of around yeah. in their nascent forms Absolutely. In, the, in the first. And so this is really a story of both technological development and intellectual development um, and the how do we put doctrine into into practice and create um, new new ideas when new technologies come about. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of the other texts, obviously Command of the Air, but um, Mitchell wrote a number of books, uh, Winged Defense, Our Air Force, Skyways. He, he, and he wrote thousands, almost, th <laughs> probably thousands. It seems like thousands. Maybe it was just hundreds, but a lot of articles. What's interesting, Jacqueline, about all three of these men, though, is that they are, I would say, advocates as much as they are theorists, and maybe more advocates mm. than theorists. Because all three of them can be very fuzzy about the link between utilizing air power and creating, and, and what it is that actually leads to the political outcome that they're trying to achieve. So a lot of assumptions are being made in the heads of these men about how populations will collapse, or they'll cry out for greater defenses, or um, somehow magically, if you take down certain target sets, the enemy will simply not be able to function anymore. But there are a lot of things they leave out. What if, in fact, the enemy proves to be more robust than you expect? Uh, what if the enemy can substitute something, if, if one munition is, is particularly important, maybe you can stockpile it, or maybe you can have another source of that uh, same thing. So there are a lot of things that they just assume away. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of assumptions that they make that are, uh, that they leave pretty well unchallenged. Uh, and it really is, in as you read them, you should read them very critically, because there are a lot of ways in which you can see assumptions that are leaps of faith, rather than really grounded, analytical, logical wrestling with the problem. They don't always explain to you what their theory of victory is. It's a sort of magical, if you do this, then this will occur. And for theorists and students of theory, this should set up some red flags. Um, but it also helps you learn to dissect writing effectively and to learn to, to really dissect these claims that, that theorists of this nature will make. Sure. I think this, this gets to one of the things I want to sort of wrap up our conversation with. Um, I, I've taught Duhay in particular for many years now, and I always struggle with this, with this question of he's not that good at history. Right. And he has lots of assumptions that he explains away, and it does sort of yeah. appear to be this magical thinking. Um, yeah. do you, what, is, what is the legacy of that style of theorizing, that mix of advocacy and theory? Does that affect 
how air power theory develops after this interwar period of sort of boom? I think it does. Certainly this tremendous emphasis that all three of these men put on the airplane as an offensive weapon is a bit of a disadvantage um, because in 19, the mid-1930s when, air, when uh, radar appears and when other mechanisms for um, effective defense appear, this puts a lot of these theories on um, fragile ground. Right. And it raises a lot of questions and a lot of problems that the practitioners who enter World War II have got to wrestle with. So many of them go into World War II with a body of assumptions informed by this heavy emphasis on offense that really lets them down. They discover that flying is a lot more difficult and, and dangerous <laughs> and ineffective. The bomber doesn't the always The bomber get does through. not always get through. Yeah. And so they really have to, in real time, they've got to make all kinds of adjustments. What's it like to go, go to a war and then discover that all of your most foundational assumptions are incorrect? <laughs> That's this, highly stressful. This happens not infrequently. Oh, absolutely. Right? So I think, I mean, and maybe that's one of the really valuable lessons of reading yes, yes. these these older texts because one of the one of the questions i get in the classroom and and ask myself is what what should contemporary strategists take from reading duhay or reading wing in defense when when you read it and you go well their history's wrong all their assumptions are wrong this you know this isn't right so how yeah. is it still useful for students um, and strategists today do you think I think when you look at this literature, these men are writing at a, at a pivotal moment. A lot of new things have arrived on the battlefield. There's a lot of change, and they are making mistakes. And what we can do is go in and analyze their writing and their thinking and ask ourselves, what mistakes did they make? What could they have anticipated better? What can, how do we, in our own pivotal transformational moment when lots of new things are arriving on the battle space, how do we think about the kinds of mistakes we might be making, the leaps of imagination that we might be making, the gaps in logic in our own thinking? Um, if we practice by looking at the ideas of, of those who have gone before us and look at them critically and analytically, think about what was the time period in which they were working and why did they think the things they thought. And then we take that same set of, a, of questions and apply them to our own contemporary right. analysis. We can actually get far along and learn how to critique our own assessments, challenge our own assumptions, and really become better strategists, more thoughtful strategists, and, and better theorists. We have to think about the link between the utilization of a military instrument of power and the political outcome we are going to achieve. And that linkage is critically important. You've got to be able to spell out how you get from X to Y and have a robust explanation that can be challenged and played with. And well, what if the enemy de develops effective defenses? Then what do you do? So you need to be able to do that kind of red teaming to do good analysis. Sure. So I think that is one of the most uh, robust and satisfying answers I've heard to uh, to this question about why we should continue to read and interrogate um, old texts, problematic texts. Um, 
and think about how they can inform our own strategic thinking, our own analysis, because certainly the, the future is maybe unknown. We might be talking today about cyber power or space power, um, and certainly there will be things that we get wrong in 2018 that in hindsight people are going to look and say, oh, what, what, what cute fools they were yes. in, in 2018, right? Well, um, why did they miss so many things? Right. How did, how did they, how get, did they get that so wrong? terribly wrong? Yeah. Um, so again, I think thanks for this uh, robust sort of examination of some of our foundational air power theories and theorists. And thanks for joining me today on A Better Peace. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.